I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's Wednesday, April 19th, 2023, the 819th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So just briefly, before we really get started, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has just wrapped up his speech announcing his run for the Democratic nomination for president in 2024. He had a nice packed ballroom, 
a very energetic crowd, not the sort of thing that you would see at a Joe Biden speech. There were no small circles drawn on the floor. He was not failing to read words off a teleprompter and babbling his way through the speech. So there is a different sort of energy now in the National Democrat Party, and that is largely a major improvement. I raved about his speech last week at Hillsdale College, where he really went after the deep state. I think that speech was absolutely wonderful. People should watch it. This speech was not that. This was a lot about his history, uh, his liberal bona fides, his work in conservation and the environment, and the occasionally successful attempts to beat back the pharma companies for the sake of Americans' health, his work with the poor, a lot of very Democrat Party-oriented liberal stuff that I don't see as being particularly attractive to a large portion of this country. But again, it's great that he is capturing part of that Democrat audience, and we're going to have to see where this goes. I laid out my thoughts about the potential benefits of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. running in this primary a couple of weeks ago. The episode is called A Gateway Drug to Reality, and I'm content to let that stand and see how this all develops. He did not spend his time going after Donald Trump, as I suggested in that podcast. I don't think that's going to be the bulk of his campaign at any point. The one time he did go after Donald Trump, it was for the lockdowns, which Donald Trump cannot possibly bear full responsibility for. And it is fine to assign him some responsibility for the lockdowns during COVID, knowing that he was not the driving force behind initiating them or keeping them going. He said the economy needs to be opened back up early on in that lockdown process. He was right about that. The lockdowns were obviously incredibly destructive. People can blame Trump to the extent they want for those lockdowns. I think that's misguided, but if that's the attack point, go right ahead. The audience was not able to cheer his anti-lockdown position, even as he attached it to Donald Trump. And that's a big deal because COVID as a vector for attack against Donald Trump is just not going to work. The only attacks against COVID are the direct refutations of what the COVID policy makers actually implemented. And no matter what arguments people can make now in hindsight, the people who hated Donald Trump were supporting all of that COVID mitigation regime that failed. So you cannot go against that COVID mitigation regime and then shift the responsibility for all that on Donald Trump. It's not possible. They couldn't cheer the anti-lockdown position, even while it was attached to Donald Trump, because the people in that room know that they supported the entire thing. And that was one of the really interesting aspects of having watched this speech that was an hour and 40 minutes long. There were a bunch of these instances where he would come out forcefully with a position and people really couldn't get behind it because they know he's right, but they also know that them cheering it is wrong because they supported it. 
And as I said in the episode a couple weeks ago, the gateway drug to reality, I think this is how his campaign is going to go. He made it clear from the beginning that on some level he was running as anti-establishment. He said he wanted to end the corrupt merger of state and corporate power because we are being introduced into a new corporate feudalism. Who does that sound like? Well, I've said it over and over again for the entire time I've been doing this podcast. Donald Trump has a different way of approaching it, but he's talking about the very same problem. I hope that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. will be very effective along these lines and will quickly shift away from catering to the Democratic Party base that represents the establishment and has backed the establishment full time up until right now. There was a point at which he went after the CIA, noting that his uncle, John F. Kennedy Jr., talked about shattering the CIA into a thousand pieces and scattering it to the wind. And he received applause for that position because the strange derangement in the Democrat Party and among those still connected to the central narrative is that they believe they are the anti-establishment people working against the forces of power in this country. They have no idea what the forces of power are. They think it's the other side. They think it's bad Republicans or racists or climate deniers or vaccine deniers or election deniers. But none of those people are in power. They are in power. The system they support is in power. And so applauding the potential downfall of the CIA is just totally disingenuous when they have been supporting the CIA's agenda, largely as a product of very effective psyops and brainwashing for as long as they've been alive up till and including right now, as they still support the corporate media who function as the mouthpieces of the CIA and of the global regime. It's not a mistake that so many former intelligence officials are in the American corporate media. He said near the end of his speech, I don't want the Democratic Party to be the party of fear and pharma and war and censorship. We have to be more than neocons with woke bobbleheads. That is very strong, very good and exceedingly accurate. And I wish Robert F. Kennedy Jr. all the luck in the world in transforming the Democrat Party into something other than that, because the Democrat Party through and through right now is the party of fear and pharma and war and censorship. And I get it. The uniparty left and the uniparty right support all the same things. We talked about this at length yesterday. The neocons are no different than the left. In fact, their history is no different than the left. The neocon movement descends directly from Trotsky. It descends from communism. It descends from socialism. They are not in any legitimate way conservative in the first place. They're only conservative to the extent that conservatism over time in America became inextricably linked with being pro-war and pro-business. To that extent, the neocons are conservative, but that is only a misdefining of conservatism, not a true claim to conservatism by neocons. I do hope that he shifts the Democrat Party away from this stuff as Trump 
has shifted and is continuing to shift the rest of the country away from the politics of fear and pharma and war and censorship. RFK Jr. also discussed the war in Ukraine and how too much of our money is being sent over there, leaving us unable to deal with problems at home. But he started his Ukraine remarks by saying he didn't think it was good that one side calls the other Nazis while that side calls the other Putin supporters or Putin lovers. And liberal audiences eat that stuff up because they want to imagine that their position is the unifying position. They're happy to exchange no longer being called Nazis for not calling other people Putin supporters. The problem is that they call people Putin supporters for opposing the Ukraine war for any reason they might oppose the U.S. involvement and the global involvement in the Ukraine war. It doesn't actually require anyone supporting Putin to do that. In fact, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. did that on stage. He said we shouldn't be over there in that war and we're being lied to about that war. Our position doesn't require us to lie about the war. Meanwhile, supporting Ukraine and pretending that there aren't Nazis there requires only lying about the situation. So I'm sorry, but I'm not willing to accept your middle position. And if Democrats do and that moves them closer to the truth, that's just fine. But this isn't some grand display of speaking truth to power. This is a display of wanting to be seen as a unifier. It's like those influencers online and celebrities and athletes talking about how they just want to inspire people. Well, you're supposed to inspire people if they respect what you're doing and your work. It's not a goal to try to be inspiring. I want to be seen as inspiring. That is a very silly goal. Inspiring other people can be the result of work that is not done for the sake of inspiring people. People who are trying to inspire people very, very rarely do. People who are trying to unify people very rarely do because they're trying to find a point that will unify people that exists somewhere other than the truth about the situation. So I have to say I have some pretty stark disagreements with Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s approach in his speech today. Again, I absolutely love the Hillsdale speech. I hope everyone watches it. I imagine that his campaign is going to become more refined over time and that some of this messaging might fall away. And I will say, as I said in the episode a couple weeks back, that I hope he has a very positive effect on that particular group of people that someone like Donald Trump or someone like me cannot possibly reach at this point. Maybe there's some very positive effect to come out of all of that. And as I said in that episode, if the Democrat Party chooses to rig primaries against Robert F. Kennedy Jr., I think the people who are election fraud deniers in this country are going to find themselves waking up to reality very quickly. So, I guess we'll see what happens. So on the podcast yesterday, I gave my thoughts about a potential settlement coming from Fox to Dominion in the lawsuit that was about to begin 
in Delaware. And within an hour of me posting the show, the announcement came out that Fox and Dominion had reached a settlement. Here's NBC News. I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs from this just to give the background here. Fox News and Dominion Voting Systems reached a $787.5 million settlement agreement Tuesday afternoon, the parties announced, narrowly heading off a trial shortly after the jury was sworn in. Fox has admitting to telling lies, John Poulos, Dominion's CEO, said at a news conference after the trial ended. Justin Nelson, lead attorney for Dominion, told NBC News he hopes the settlement will restore faith in elections. This alone can't do it, right? But this shows that there is accountability, that we showed that if you are caught lying, you will be held responsible, he said. Absent from the settlement details shared with the public was an apology or any admission that the network had indeed defamed Dominion when it allowed baseless conspiracies to proliferate on air about the company's voting machines rigging the 2020 presidential election against Donald Trump. A statement from Fox about the agreement recognized the court's previous ruling that the claims Dominion had challenged in its lawsuit were indeed without merit. So hold on to that idea for a second. We acknowledge the court's rulings finding certain claims about Dominion to be false, the Fox statement said. This settlement reflects Fox's continued commitment to the highest journalistic standards. We are hopeful that our decision to resolve this dispute with Dominion amicably instead of the acrimony of a divisive trial allows the country to move forward from these issues. When pressed, a spokesperson for Dominion said an apology is about accountability. And today, Dominion held Fox accountable. So as I described yesterday, the settlement exists to make all this go away. The Fox statement said it in the words. We are hopeful that our decision to resolve this dispute with Dominion amicably instead of the acrimony of a divisive trial allows the country to move forward from these issues. Well, why didn't you just settle it two years ago? You settled it on the day the trial was supposed to be starting after it was delayed for a day so that they could have these last minute settlement conversations. And Fox didn't admit that all their claims were false. They simply recognized that the judge had determined that the claims were false. So let's talk about what that means. This is from a substack called Thomas Resurgence by Andrew Thomas. And for the credentialists out there, his bio on substack says Harvard Law grad and former Maricopa County attorney. The article is called Leftist Judge is Dismantling Fox News. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but I do want to give you a sense of what's happening here. Today, a fundamentally unfair trial began in Delaware against Fox News and its parent corporation that may genuinely hasten the end of Fox News or at a minimum politically alter its news coverage. Following the 2020 election, supporters of President Trump accused Dominion Voting Systems, a private voting machine manufacturer, of misconduct involving its machines and its maintenance and supervision of them. 
In 2021, Dominion filed a series of defamation lawsuits against both Fox News and Fox Corporation for airing claims by interviewees regarding Dominion and its practices during coverage of the 2020 election. Dominion seeks $1.6 billion in damages, which presumably includes potential punitive damages under Delaware law. So obviously this was written before the settlement was announced. Fox contends the network did its job by reporting accurately the claims made by the sitting president, his esteemed lawyers and others in his service. The transcripts of key interviews by Fox News hosts showed direct, persistent questioning of Dominion's critics rather than lapdog treatment that purveyors of the Mueller investigation and the Russia hoax, for example, received on MSNBC and other comparable media. Still, this is a case against a conservative media leviathan that the left wants to take down, so the standards have changed. Indeed, things are not going well for Fox, and few on the right are scrutinizing the case. Fox is exactly where the left wants it. The conservative giant is wobbling, struggling to fight off a lawsuit backed by the official establishment narrative of the 2020 elections and an unabashedly hostile judge eager to bring this titan to heel. If Fox goes down, the right will lose by far its greatest media champion. Now, I would disagree with that entire portrayal of what Fox is and their chances in this lawsuit. I covered this a few weeks ago. I think I mentioned it yesterday. You can find what was in the Dominion Discovery at the same point at which the entire media went crazy about text messages from Fox News hosts. The article is from February 17th, 2023. Fox versus Dominion Discovery Docs show employees admitting their products were riddled with critical bugs leading to incorrect results. So Fox has in the discovery, in this case, Dominion with knowledge that Dominion systems cannot produce reliable results and are wide open to hacking and other forms of manipulation. At that point alone, there is absolutely no way for Dominion to prove defamation. If, that is, the jury is actually allowed to hear the evidence produced. But then we have Delaware Superior Court Judge Eric Davis, who is overseeing this case. The article notes that at one point during a discussion of Dominion's opportunity to cross-examine Fox witnesses, Davis said, I could have a lot of fun with this case. Andrew Thomas writes, Judge Davis relishes berating Fox and its personnel in open court. Recently, Davis mocked Fox business channel anchor Maria Bartiromo in a colloquy with a Fox News attorney. Ignoring Fox's responses, Judge Davis repeatedly and summarily has taken the side of Dominion on discovery issues, scolding Fox's lawyers for allegedly failing to fully disclose the role of Fox Corporation chairman Rupert Murdoch and evidence from an ex-Fox producer who had just filed her own lawsuit. You have a credibility problem, Davis told Fox's lawyers as he sanctioned Fox News. He writes, Judge Davis has shaped the battlefield in important ways with his rulings on what evidence the jury can consider. For example, Davis barred Fox from defending itself at trial by noting the many times in its broadcasts that it fact-checked the Trump campaign's claims. Yet by far the most tyrannical and alarming of Davis's actions involves summary judgment. Davis granted Dominion summary judgment on the falsity of statements made against Dominion. As a result, Fox cannot even argue to the jury that some of the statements made about Dominion by Trump attorneys Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell were accurate. 
The judge has declared as a matter of law that all of these statements were false. So the jury won't be allowed even to consider whether any of the claims by Trump's representatives were true. The jury will be instructed they are all false. So there might be no ambiguity on the matter. And as if to underscore his bias, Davis wrote, the evidence developed in this civil proceeding demonstrates that it is crystal clear none of the statements related to Dominion about the 2020 election are true. That is verifiably false based on Dominion's own discovery productions in this trial, as you can see in Raheem Substack and the docs, which are linked inside that Substack. By rule, a judge can grant summary judgment to a party only when there is no, quote, genuine issue of material fact, end quote, and the party is entitled to judgment as a matter of law. This is a very high bar. Still, as the courts have become more politicized, summary judgment has been used by leftist or self-interested judges to deny the right to a jury trial or outright dismiss cases they want to go away. And he goes on to discuss the very dangerous precedent this is setting in a defamation case. The defense is not even allowed to produce and use evidence, show the jury the evidence that their statements are in fact based in fact, even if those facts are disputable. And obviously, this is a total breakdown of our judicial system. This is rampant injustice facilitated by both sides of this. Fox News did not have to settle with Dominion. They have the facts. They obviously have an adversarial judge, but we can't pretend that they were pursuing this case in full anyway, or we wouldn't have seen this sort of settlement. They could have fought this till the end and won. And if they lost in front of Judge Davis, they could have appealed because the facts and the evidence are on their side. But they didn't do that because they wanted to preserve the status quo, the status quo being a collective public understanding, however small, but largely vocal, that our elections are safe and secure and there's nothing wrong with the system. So Fox gets to protect that system, which they have spent the last two and a half years protecting, despite this Dominion claim and this lawsuit, this $1.6 billion hanging over their head that they have used as an excuse to continue not talking about the elections. Oh, we're scared of lawsuits, so we can't tell Americans their elections are stolen as they quite obviously are. And the evidence proves again that Dominion cannot guarantee any reliability of their results or even the security of their own systems. Now, I understand that the unfortunate part of this is that you are seeing all over the Internet. I'm sure you have people texting you. Oh, you see, it's over now. The big lie has been proven to be a big lie over again. That's not what was proven here at all. Not remotely. In fact, go into the discovery, pull out those documents, send those to the liberal friend and say, hey, how is it possible that Dominion knows its machines are not reliable and are open to manipulation? Doesn't that suggest that maybe our elections are not as safe and secure as you pretend they are? You don't need to be scared of these people. You don't need to back down to them while they think they're doing some little touchdown dance. They've won the game again. Ah, ha, ha. We proved we were right. No, you didn't prove you were right at all. All you've shown is that two 
totally corrupt regime linked corporations made a deal to preserve their aligned interests. Numbers representing some amount of fiat regime bucks were transferred from one part of the regime to another part of the regime. And I imagine in the not too distant future, we'll see Dominion declare that they are going to use all of their brand new Fox News regime bucks to set up all of these little nonpartisan organizations dedicated to election integrity around the country. They are going to be 2024's Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, the Center for Tech and Civic Life, and Dominion is going to be a stalwart in preserving the free and fair nature of American elections. Now, obviously, I don't know if that's going to happen, but I'm just saying I wouldn't be surprised. That's usually how these things go. That's their way of saying to the public, not only are we not bad, we are actually the best good. Now, while we're on the topic of elections, just a quick update to the status of Mark Elias. This is from Daily Caller today. Mark Elias, Democratic campaign arm, hit with FEC complaint for allegedly misclassifying legal payments. Isn't that interesting? It's like exactly what they're accusing Donald Trump of doing in New York. Democratic lawyer Mark Elias and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee are the subjects of a complaint to the Federal Election Commission alleging that they misclassified payments. The Elias Law Group was paid nearly $5.2 million by the DCCC from October 2021 to July 2022 for legal services classified as, quote, recount legal services. Despite no federal recounts taking place in that time period and months to go until the November 2022 midterm elections, according to an FEC complaint brought on April 10th by the Committee to Defeat the President, an anti-Biden super PAC. Now, that is very interesting timing. So this complaint was brought on April 10th. And within a week following that, Mark Elias parts ways with the DNC. Literally two days after this complaint is filed, Elias parts ways with the DNC. Sounds like something might be happening. After July 2022, Elias's group received an additional $7.3 million for recount related services for the midterm elections, the complaint alleges. Elias's firm was tasked with preparing for potential recounts, monitoring the conduct of the election and handling post-election disputes. The more likely explanation, according to the complaint letter, is the DCCC, with the cooperation of the Elias Law Group, misreported the purpose of some or all of this $5.2 million in payments to the Elias Law Group to shield their activities from public scrutiny. The article gives a bit of Elias's background, including his involvement with the fake steel dossier, and it ends this way. Clinton's failed presidential campaign and the DNC were fined by the FEC in 2022 for misreporting payments toward the dossier as legal expenses instead of opposition research. For years, the infamous Mark Elias and the corrupt Democrats in his orbit have violated federal campaign finance laws, and it's high time to hold them accountable. Americans deserve to know the truth about the Democratic Party's shady money laundering schemes, especially when campaign funds are supposed to be spent in one way and they get spent in another. Backer said in a statement, and this is Dan Backer, 
a lawyer for the committee to defeat the president. He goes on based on the committee's robust research and Elias's own shady past. It seems pretty clear that Elias and other Democrats have engaged in false reporting and this cannot go unchecked. So this may sound like a relatively minor thing, something that's just going to get brushed off to the side and we'll never hear about again. But the fact that this complaint came two days before Elias parted ways with the DNC is pretty significant. So we'll keep an eye on it. Now, I want to hit some Ukraine stuff quickly because there's an interesting article today from CNN authored by their deep state mouthpiece, Natasha Bertrand, who is just honestly a disinformation agent. The headline is U.S. warns Russia not to touch American nuclear technology at Ukrainian nuclear plant. The U.S. has sensitive nuclear technology at a nuclear power plant inside Ukraine and is warning Russia not to touch it. According to a letter, the U.S. Department of Energy sent to Russia's state-owned nuclear energy firm Rosatom last month. In the letter, which was reviewed by CNN and is dated March 17th, 2023, the director of the Energy Department's Office of Non-Proliferation Policy, Andrea Ferkail, tells Rosatom's director general that the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant and Enerodar contains U.S. origin nuclear technical data that is export controlled by the United States government. Goods, software and technology are subject to U.S. export controls when it is possible for them to be used in a way that undermines U.S. national security interests. The Energy Department letter comes as Russian forces continue to control the plant, which is the largest nuclear power station in Europe and sits in a part of the Zaporozhia region that Russia occupied after its invasion of Ukraine last February. The plant has frequently been disconnected from Ukraine's power grid due to intense Russian shelling in the area, raising fears across Europe of a nuclear accident. Now, that doesn't make any sense, particularly since she notes that Ukraine has controlled the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant for over a year now. They're not trying to blow up the plant. And there have been stories specifically about this that have already been proven to be false. The letter states. It is unlawful under United States law for non-authorized persons, including but not limited to Russian citizens and Russian entities such as Rosatom and its subsidiaries to knowingly and willfully access, possess, control, export, store, seize, review, re-export, ship, transfer, copy, manipulate such technology or technical data or direct or authorize others to do the same without such Russian entities becoming authorized recipients by the secretary of the U.S. Department of Energy. So they're trying to tell Russia that the nuclear technology and technical secrets that are in the Zaporozhia power plant cannot be touched by Russia or else it's illegal. And to the extent that Russia is in a war right now in Ukraine, which is a proxy war of the United States and the global regime. What could this letter possibly mean or do? It's a very strange warning while being absolutely decimated in a war to tell the other side not to touch or look at the thing they already have control over. 
Basically, they're just asking for a favor and they have no leverage. But if you go back a little further, and this is mentioned very briefly at the end of this article, the Energy Department's Office of Nuclear Energy has been public about the U.S.'s support for the plant and stated on its website in June 2021 that, quote, the United States helped implement new maintenance procedures and operations at the reactor that should ultimately strengthen energy security in Ukraine. So the Biden administration, the fake president and the people around him have shipped these very important nuclear technologies and technical secrets to this plant in Ukraine, Russia has as much control over this as they want. And now we have our Department of Energy asking them for a favor and saying, hey, please don't uh, touch these nuclear secrets. I know that we're in a war and this would obviously help you, but we're going to tell somebody that what you're doing is illegal if you don't stop. The whole thing is ridiculous. And to be honest, kind of sounds like Joe Biden is responsible for giving our nuclear secrets to Russia. Isn't that what they were accusing Trump of with the Mar-a-Lago raid? Man, it's so weird how these stories just come back around on the other side all the time. Now, this is from the Russian news agency, TASS. So consider that in your thinking. Take it for what it's worth. This is a headline from today. Russian forces repelled two Ukrainian attacks in Zaporozhye's Orokov overnight. Russian forces repelled two Ukrainian attempts to attack in the Zaporozhye region's Orokov over the past night. Vladimir Rogov, leader of the We Are Together with Russia movement, reported on Wednesday. So again, grain of salt, take it for what it's worth. But it's odd that this comes up right as the U.S. is making statements about these nuclear secrets in Zaporozhye. At first, on the Zaporozhye front between Kamensky and Orokov, a group of Ukrainian fighters without the support of equipment tried to conduct reconnaissance in force of our defense line in the zone of responsibility of the 291st Artillery Brigade. It was met with retaliatory fire and the rest of the Nazis returned to their positions, he said during a Soloviev live TV broadcast. The article describes some more of the confrontation, but let's just hit the end here. On Tuesday, Rogov told TASS that the Ukrainian forces may be active combat operations on the engagement line in the Kherson region within a week. According to his assessment, in case of a counterattack, Ukrainian units would try to evade battles and try to break through to the Sea of Azov east of Melitopol in order to cut a land corridor to Crimea. In the end of March, Rogov told TASS that the Ukrainian forces summoned up to 75,000 people to the Zaporozhye front after an attempt to counterattack on March 23rd, which was thwarted by the Russian forces who destroyed up to 400 servicemen. It is also notable that Vladimir Putin himself was on the ground in Kherson within the past week. So once again, none of what's happening over there is being properly described in any way by American media. So let's get to some of the Elon Musk interview with Tucker Carlson. As you might imagine, the bulk of the conversation revolved around AI and Twitter, but they discussed some politics, some global banking and some other subjects. The entire interview, I believe, is worth watching. But these are the moments that really caught my ear. 
the, the, the things like, like say, uh, ChatGPT, which is uh, based on GPT-4 from OpenAI, which right. is a company that I uh, played a, a critical role in, in creating, unfortunately. Uh, Back when it was a nonprofit? Yes. Um, I mean, the, 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 the reason uh, OpenAI exists at all is that um, Larry Page and I used to be close friends, and I would yes. stay at his house in Palo Alto, and I would talk to him late into the night about uh, AI safety. And at least my perception was that Larry was not taking uh, AI safety uh, seriously enough. Um, and um, what did he say about it? He really seemed to be one um, once, once sort of a digital super intelligence, basically digital god, if you will, uh, uh, as soon as possible. Um, he wanted that. Yes, he's, he's made many public statements over the years uh, that, that the whole goal of Google is. Uh, uh, what's called AGI, artificial general intelligence, or artificial superintelligence. But, no, and I, and I agree with him that the, there's great potential for good, um, but there's also potential for bad. And so, if if you've got some um, radical new technology, you want to try to take the set of actions that maximize probably it, it will do good, and minimize probably it will do bad things. Yes. Um, it, it can't just be health leather. Let's just go, you know, barreling forward and you know hope for the best. And then at one point. Uh, I said, well, what about, you know, we're going to make sure humanity's okay here. Um, <laughs> and, 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 um, uh, and then he called me a speciest. Uh, <laughs> did, he use, did he use that term? Yes. And there were witnesses. To other, I wasn't the only one there when he called me a speciest. And so I was like, okay, that's it. Uh, I've, yes, I'm a speciest. Okay. You got me. <laughs> what are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm fully suspicious. Um, busted. Um, so um, that was the last straw. So Elon Musk and Larry Page started OpenAI. It was supposed to be open source. It was supposed to be transparent. And it was supposed to be both of those things because of the realization that AI could have this profound impact on humanity and that they should operate with some care in the development of AI. Elon Musk said that AI should be directed to provide good for humans. And in response, Google's Larry Page, who has been systematically collecting all of the data about everybody in the world now for decades, called him a specious, as Elon Musk says it, I think what he means is speciesist, someone who is adhering to speciesism, which is basically like racism, but involving different species. Like if you prize human life over the life of an ant or a fly or a rabbit or a goat or a lion, then you are a speciesist. It might also be speciesist. I don't think it is, but let's just accept that for now. That is what this school of philosophy ascribes to. They think that it is in some way prejudiced or bigoted to respect human life over other forms of life. And maybe you can have an interesting conversation around that. If you actually believe that fully and take it to its fullest extent, you may well be insane. But there are certainly people within the environmental movement and the nut jobs over at PETA and whatnot who really do believe that very strongly. I remember first hearing about this in Intro to Moral Philosophy as part of my philosophy courses in college. 
and it was always described in relation to animals. But that's not what Larry Page means. He is trying to create a tech god, a godlike being or godlike consciousness created out of AI. And that is the species he's talking about, a species that literally does not exist and will be created in the technological realm by humans such as Larry Page. That's the species he's trying to protect in this scenario. And he basically said point blank to Elon Musk that if you don't allow me to build this overpowering tech god, you're a bigot. It's amazing, isn't it? How many issues can be totally dismissed and discredited simply by calling someone a bigot, even when their bigotry is toward a non-existent technological creation of humankind. And he goes on a bit about Larry Page and sets up the conversation as these two sides in opposition, Elon Musk's vision for what AI could and should be versus this more insane, dystopian, transhumanist and technocratic vision. Google uh, had acquired DeepMind, and so Google and DeepMind together had about three quarters of all the uh, AI talent in the world. They obviously had a tremendous amount of money and uh, more computers than anyone else. So I'm like, okay, we're, we have a unipolar world here where there's just one one company that has close to a monopoly on uh, AI talent and, uh, and and computers, like so scaled computing. And the person who's in, in charge doesn't seem to care about safety. This is not good. So, uh, so then I thought, what's the, the furthest thing from Google would be like a nonprofit uh, yeah. That is fully open because Google was closed uh, for profit. So that's why the open and open AI refers to open source, uh, you know, transparency, so people know what's going on. Yes, and that it, it, we don't want to have like a, a. I mean, while I'm normally in favor of for profit, we don't want this to be sort of a profit maximizing of demon course. from hell. That's you know? right. <laughs> that just never stops. Right. <laughs> so that, that's how open AI was. Would, would, so you want specious incentives here. Incentives that yes, like, I think we want human. we want pro-human. Yeah, let's make the future good for the humans. So they go into a little discussion about what AI is able to do well and what dangers it might present, and then this part of the conversation I find absolutely fascinating. They need a new option, something else. The open AI thing basically got subsumed into the same Google thing. Now it's over there. What can we do? And then I kind of took my eye off the ball, I guess, and uh, they are now closed source, um, and they are obviously for profit, and they're um, closely allied with Microsoft. Uh, you know, in effect, Microsoft uh, has a very strong say, if not um, directly controls uh, OpenAI at this point. Um, so you really have an OpenAI and Microsoft situation. And then at Google DeepMind uh, are the other two sort of heavyweights in this arena. So it seems like the world needs a third option. Yes. So I, I, I think I will create a third option, um, although starting very late in the game, of course. Can it um, be done? I don't know. I think it's, we'll, we'll see. It's uh, definitely starting late, um, but I will, I will, I'll try to create a third option, um, and that third option, 
hopefully does more more good than harm. Uh, like the intention with OpenAI was uh, obviously to do good, but it's not clear whether it's actually doing good or whether it's, I, I can't tell at this point, um, except that I'm worried about the fact that uh, it's being it's being trained to be politically correct, which is simply another way of, of being untruth, saying untruthful things. Yes. So that's, that's a bad sign. There's certainly a path to AI dystopia is to train AI to be deceptive. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start something which I know you call Truth GBT or uh, a maximum truth-seeking AI that tries to understand the nature of the universe. And I think this this might be the best path to safety in the sense that uh, an AI that cares about understanding the universe uh, it is unlikely to annihilate humans because we are an interesting part of the universe. Now, that is a very interesting approach. The common example that has been used in discussions around AI for a very long time, when the discussion on how to direct AI arrives, uses an example of, well, what if we set the AI up to do something rather innocuous, like produce paperclips? The AI's goal is to maximize for paperclip production. Well, at a basic level, that doesn't sound like a big deal until it expands and it wants to increase its capacity to produce paperclips at the expense of humans or the planet or animals or whatever else. And we end up with a world full of paperclips where all life has been extinguished in pursuit of paperclip maximization. Then you have the Larry Page view where he thinks the purpose is to create some sort of superhuman tech god. Elon is rerouting these interests and saying that it is possible, theoretically at least, to design an AI bent on discovering truth about the world and to continue discovering truth in its observation of the world, taking interest in all parts of the world is likely to protect and preserve humanity because it sees humanity as an interesting part of the world. It is similar to the inclination humans have to preserve animal life and not want to see species of animals go extinct. But the search for truth for humans in some way mirrors the search for the truth of God. And generally, people committed to that motivation are probably not as inclined to go around trying to seize power from other humans, take over other lands, destroy societies and civilizations, at least to the extent that they are committed to the principles of truth-seeking and that search for the truth about our existence and about God, rather than using that truth to then amass power and control. It's a very interesting description of direction and purpose that isn't brought up very often in these AI discussions. And on its face, at least, it seems to be certainly a less threatening direction for AI to go in than the Larry Page model. Now, between those two clips, they took a little tangent into this little discussion while they were talking about Larry Page and open AI. How did it get this way? I it's, thought, it's, but it's, you funded it at the beginning. What happened? Yeah, well, that would be ironic. But faith, the most ironic outcome is the most likely, it seems. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm stealing that. That's good. 
That's actually from a friend of mine, Jonah, who came up with that one. I actually have a slight variant on that, which is the most entertaining outcome is the most likely. But that's entertaining as viewed from a third-party viewer. <laughs> right. Like, uh, so if we're like an alien from TV on show. From high, yes. Yeah. Um, like you could go see a movie about World War One, and they're being blown to bits and they're gassed and everything in the, in the trenches, and it's like you're eating popcorn and having a soda. You know, it's yeah. fine. Uh, not so great for the people in the movie. True. This is Occam's Razor. The simplest explanation is most likely Jonah's variant, uh, which is um, irony, and then my variant, which is uh, the the most entertaining as seen by a third party audience. Now, I've got to say, that view lines up pretty well with my own and how I approach this podcast, which you may have noticed. I think that things are going to get continually crazier on all of these different levels until people realize what's going on. I've talked about this many times. I think that we are basically seeing reruns of the same stories over and over again. Different characters, different places, different times, slight changes in the plot points, new additions to the old version, and we just see them circle back through again and again and again. Immigration, inflation, taxation, the insurrection, COVID, lockdowns, masks, vaccines, mail-in ballots, election fraud, all of the issues. We see them come around again and again and again and again. And each time we see the story come around, the people who have not woken up double down harder on their position, making it harder for them to ever get out of that position. And in the meantime, a lot of the people who have stuck with that position up till a certain point, let go of that position. Now that they have finally been convinced that something else is going on. They throw up their hands. They decide they've had enough of defending all of that. And they begin to open their minds to another point of view. They have seen the story enough times, the trans thing, whatever else. There are people out there who have supported all of the trans stuff up until a few weeks ago when they see the Christian school shot up by a trans terrorist. They see the Dylan Mulvaney on a Bud Light can. They see all of this stuff going on and they say enough is enough. I want people to be able to live the lives that make them happy, but not at the expense of shooting up other people, not at the expense of the schools and other institutions, pharma, trying to turn our kids transgender, teaching them toxic ideologies, setting them up for a lifetime of confusion and unhappiness, I'm out. That's where people eventually need to end up. And so they'll be told these stories over and over and over again. And the contrast in these stories between right and wrong will be increased each time. It's going to be a more intense version of the story every time until they wake up understand what's happening and understand they can no longer support the position they used to support. And at that moment, maybe it's possible that they change. We see that pattern repeating over and over and over again. And the point is, and I believe the point Elon Musk is making that from a third party perspective, as people who aren't involved in the situation, the most entertaining option is the most likely. And he provides that entertainment doesn't necessarily mean you're going to love seeing everything that happens. It means that it's going to keep your attention and you won't look away. It also incorporates the fact that these events and the way they're described 
to the public are in one way or some ways or many ways totally contrived. For instance, we can know from our history, from Vietnam, from the wars in the Middle East following 9-11, that the military industrial complex and our government lies to us all the time. But a lot of people don't accept that. And so we see during the beginning of the Ukraine war, all of this mis and disinformation flowing from the global regime's propaganda mouthpieces. We see stories about Snake Island. We see stories about the maternity hospitals. We see stories about the ghost of Kiev. And it turns out they're all false. They're all quickly and easily debunked. No one ends up believing them. But they were huge, ridiculous stories that a lot of people hooked into and then found out were false. Their attention was grabbed. It didn't end up how they thought it was going to end up. And the natural reaction in that scenario is to get mad at the people telling you this false information that proves pretty quickly to be false. And what he's describing turns out to be a pretty decent way to perceive what's going to happen in the future when you understand or you accept or believe that the narrative we're being given by both sides, all sides, however you want to describe it, must be convincing while it is attention grabbing and entertaining to that extent. You can look at the recent Donald Trump indictment. Does that mean that the walls are closing in and Donald Trump is going to spend his life in prison? Of course not. It's ridiculous. But we need to see that our society has reached that point and that these sorts of things are possible, despite all the norms that we've been taught for our entire lives about how this sort of thing could never happen. Certainly not here. This is the stuff of banana republics and authoritarian dictatorships. But then it comes here and people see it. And the people on that side, they go crazy. They think that the walls have finally closed in. We are going to get Donald Trump and a bunch of the people who used to be on that side will say to themselves, this has gone too far. I cannot do this anymore. And they begin to open their minds. That's happening by virtue of these situations becoming more and more extreme. And if you're the sort of person like me who has woken up in the last seven or eight years, particularly the last three years, then you've probably experienced this yourself. So what he said was a bit tongue in cheek, but there's also a very serious element to that. And it is a pretty good observation of what is actually happening in the world right now. If you've been listening to this show for a long time, you'll know I have different opinions, a different viewpoint, a different belief on how Twitter was acquired being the most powerful information weapon in the history of mankind, I don't simply buy that Elon Musk put $44 billion together and was able to purchase this information weapon from the regime. That does not make any sense to me, and I don't care what the reports are. I don't care what anyone says about it. It is not something that conceivably can happen in the world. I have said Things that are priceless are not acquired for $44 billion from the richest and most powerful people in the world, especially not when the very thing that's acquired is part of what gives them the most power and wealth in the world. And having someone else control it can strip them of that power and wealth. Now, listen to what Elon says here. You said you bought it because you believe in speech, free speech, 
you've had a lot of hassle since you bought it. In retrospect, was it worth buying it? I mean, it remains to be seen as to whether this was uh, financially smart. Uh, currently, it is. It is not. Uh, you know, we just revalued the company at less than half of uh, the acquisition price. Did you really? Yes. Sorry. Um, <laughs> um, no, my, my timing was terrible for for when the uh, offer was made because it was uh, you know right before advertising plummeted and yeah. um, you you cut the high water mark. I noticed. Yeah. Yeah. So I must be a real genius here. Um, my my timing is amazing. <laughs> um, since if I had bought it for at least twice as much as it should have been bought for, um, but some things are priceless. And um, so the the whether I lose money or not, that is a secondary issue compared to uh, ensuring the uh, strength of democracy uh, and free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy. Yes. Um, and any, the the speech needs to be as uh, transparent and truthful as possible. Um, so we've, we've got a, a huge push uh, on Twitter to be as truthful as possible. Some things are priceless. He describes when discussing getting rid of most of the staff at Twitter, how Twitter is basically just a group text application at scale. And that's essentially what it is. It is not that complex. And while it's extremely popular and it has been used for the last, what, 16, 17 years as one of the sources of information that has shaped and largely controlled our culture, it dominates the political conversation, dominates financial conversations, it dominates the public conversation at large. It had the ability to shift public opinion, to shift markets, to overthrow countries, to change the results of the elections. It's had a profound impact, but its impact is not in its technology. And in many ways, it's not in its user base either. It was priceless because they were working with governments and working with transnational corporations working with intelligence agencies. It's all that data and all the ability to control conversations in a way that the other sites simply can't do. That's what makes it priceless. It was $44 billion because to the extent that it was a public company, there were shareholders and people who needed to get paid processes that they had to go through for the public optics, in my view, and for obvious reasons, if you don't ascribe to my view, but the control that it gave to whoever owns it and the influence and power that was exerted through that platform is what makes it priceless. And Elon Musk said right there, he and I have never talked about this before. He's the one saying it's priceless. It's clearly not just a business decision. Now, could Elon Musk be a very bad guy who is tricking us all, just like Donald Trump is tricking us all? Sure, we cannot be absolutely certain. And you might think I'm making too much of his comments, but I don't think so. How many ways are you supposed to read that? He's just saying it's priceless because he cares that much about free speech. He might care a great deal about free speech. It hasn't led him to put everyone back on the platform yet. That's for sure. But it's clearly not just a business or financial decision to him, and it's worth considering what that means. No, I didn't have enough cash to acquire it, so I would need you know, support from others, um, from some of the existing investors, 
Uh, it would also need like a lot of debt. And um, so it wasn't clear to me whether a, an acquisition would succeed, but I thought I would try. And uh, ultimately, it, it did succeed. Anyway, here we are. Um, but when you got there and all of a sudden you own it and all the data on the servers belongs to you. And well, it belongs to the people in my view, but yes. So this, by the way, is about five minutes later on in the interview. And it's kind of directed toward the same subject I was just discussing. He was worried about being able to acquire it. He was worried about getting the money together. He kept in some of the money that was in there in the old regime including from various Saudis, for instance, who seem to be out of the picture now. And then he describes all the data as belonging to the people. So I get that people think my theories are crazy sometimes, but just listen to him talk about it. It tracks with my theory exactly. But then the conversation reroutes into Twitter's platform security and what happens to all this data. But but you can see what it is, and you can yes. see what they've been doing, and you can see who's been working there. You you were shocked to find out that various intel agencies were affecting its operations. Uh, the, the the degree to which uh, various government agencies had effectively had full access to everything that was going on on Twitter uh, blew my mind. Um, I was not aware of that. Would that include people's DMs? Uh, yes. <laughs> Yes, because the DMs are not encrypted. So one of the first, you know, one of the things that we're about to release uh, is the ability to encrypt your DMs. That's pretty heavy duty, though, because a lot of well-known people, reporters talking to their sources, government officials, the richest people yeah. in the world, sure. they're DMing each other. And the assumption, obviously, it was incorrect, but was that that's private, but that was being read by various governments. Uh, yeah, that seems to be, yes. It's scary. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, so... Um, like I said, we're moving to um, have the DMs be optionally encrypted. I mean, you know, there's like a lot of DM conversations which are, you know, just chatting with friends. It's For sure. not, not not important. Of course. Um, it's hopefully coming out later this month, uh, but no later than next month, uh, is the ability to toggle encryption on, on or off. So if you if you ha are in a conversation you think is sensitive, you can just toggle encryption on, and then no one at Twitter can see wh what you're talking about. They, they could put a gun to my head and I couldn't, I couldn't tell, I couldn't uh, the, the, you know, that, that's sort of the gun to the head test. If, if somebody puts a gun to my head, and I, can I still not uh, see your DMs? That should be that's the acid test. Yes. So people's data on Twitter is totally open to the people who own and run Twitter, whoever those people are, and to the extent that the global regime, intelligence community, and deep state and other government agencies had direct access into Twitter. Well, then they have direct access to all of your data, including your direct messages. Now, many of the most powerful people in the world were using Twitter to do this because that to them was a safe platform. It was controlled by friendly hands. I imagine they feel a lot different now, knowing that their DMs are part of Elon Musk's data that he says, by the way, belongs to the people. Is he talking about how the data belongs to the people who initially produced the data? Maybe. Or maybe Twitter ends up as a public agency to the extent that it was already partially owned by government or controlled by government, and the data belongs to all the people. The Twitter files may be a limited hangout, to whatever degree, but at least people are getting some of the data in that example. And I expect that we will eventually get a lot more. 
although it has taken him a really long time to produce the Fauci files, which were supposed to be out in February. Regardless, it's very interesting that he is talking about the acid test for all of this being the situation where if you had a gun to his head, would he be able to retrieve your private encrypted conversations? And his answer is no. That's the point of security they want to reach. That should be a natural point of security for everyone. But we've been hearing the arguments over the last 10 years and probably much longer in other domains about how there are national security interests or safety interests or whatever other interests that necessitate the government's ability to read your direct messages and your communications, regardless of your privacy rights. Elon Musk is clearly expressing a viewpoint that does not support that argument about people's total lack of privacy if the government can express a good reason to violate it. They go on to discuss Mark Zuckerberg and why the approach of other platforms doesn't mirror Elon's approach on Twitter. Why doesn't uh, Facebook do this? I know that Zuckerberg has said, and I take him at face value, that he... <laughs> I, I, well, I do, I do actually in this way. That he is a kind of old-fashioned liberal who doesn't like to censor. He has, but he, you know, like, why wouldn't a company like that take the stand that you have taken? Which is pretty rooted in American traditional political custom, you know, for free speech. My understanding is that um, Zuckerberg spent uh, $400 million in the last election, nominally in a get-out-the-vote campaign, but really fundamentally in support of Democrats. Is that accurate or not accurate? That is accurate. Yes. Does that sound unbiased to you? No, it doesn't. Yes. So you don't see hope that Facebook will approach this as a, a, a non-aligned arbiter? Now, naturally, we know all that, and we know Elon knows all that. But a lot of people in the general public don't know all that, and it's great for them to hear it on a platform like this. This is... The only thing at this point that Fox News is useful for. And it's great to hear Mark Zuckerberg called out in this way. And then he goes on to talk about Donald Trump and whether he might return to Twitter. You've allowed Donald Trump back on Twitter. He hasn't taken you up on your offer because he's got his own thing. Right. Do you think he will go back on Twitter? Well, that's that's obviously up to him. Um, you know, my, my job is to, uh, I, you know, I, I take freedom of speech just very seriously so it, it's um you know i didn't i didn't vote for donald trump i actually voted for biden not, not saying I'm, I'm a huge fan of biden because I, I i would think that would probably be inaccurate uh but um you know we have difficult choices to make in these presidential uh, yep. elections it's not i i i would prefer frankly that we 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 put someone, just a normal person, <laughs> as president, yeah. a normal person with common sense uh, and whose values are smack in the middle of the country, you know, just, you know, center of the normal distribution. And uh, I think they'll do, that they would be great. So Elon Musk would prefer a normal person with normal middle of the road values to be president. Great. Good for him. That's basically Donald Trump, by the way. To the extent that a billionaire businessman and celebrity can be a normal person, at least he is not a politician, and that's helpful. But Donald Trump actually responded to this the next day on Truth Social. He wrote, I don't believe Elon Musk voted for Biden, not for a minute. He told me that he voted for me. 
But who knows about that and who cares? Elon is just trying to make friends with the absolutely horrible Biden administration because of all the government subsidies he gets and all the permits he needs. His space company, car company, battery company, tunnel company, and even Twitter, which was illegally controlled by the FBI, need government help and subsidies. He is just mending fences. So Elon says he voted for Biden. Trump says Elon has told him that Elon voted for Trump. Doesn't really matter who Elon voted for. And Elon, I believe, is doing something that Trump does all the time, which is manipulate the public narrative. I've said countless times, I think that Twitter and the story around Twitter and Elon's purchase of Twitter are all parts of an information operation designed to produce disclosure about government improprieties and crimes against the citizenry along a controlled timeline, which means people are going to say the things they need to say to produce the proper results within the public understanding. There is probably an extent to which Trump is right, and Elon does have to navigate any discussion that involves the fake administration and the state of things right now. And one final clip, Elon discussing how Twitter was before he got there. How do you run the company with only 20% of the staff? Uh, it turns out uh, you don't need uh, all that many people to run Twitter. But 80%? That's a lot. Um, yes. Uh, over, I mean, if you're not trying to run some sort of uh, glorified activist organization uh, with, with, and you don't care that much about censorship, then uh, you can really let go of a lot of people, it turns out. <laughs> so he was basically able to get rid of 80% of the company, allow them to leave or directly fire them or dismiss them. Because again, it's a simple group text message app at scale. And when you don't need to run a glorified activist organization and you don't need to censor people, it turns out you don't need all that staff which should give you some hint as to what Twitter existed to do until the Elon era began. They were censoring people. They were working in activism for the benefit of the global regime. They were exerting control. They were using this information weapon to empower the regime. And he is stating it very directly. This is what all that staff was doing. Imagine that sort of organization, all directed toward that goal. And that, unless this entire thing is a smokescreen, is the major difference between Twitter before and Twitter now. That element has been removed. That in itself is world-changing, and that's what made Twitter priceless. Now, I am heading to Arizona this weekend to meet the Badlands crew. We have the Great American Restoration Tour happening in Arizona. Tomorrow, I will most likely have an episode. I'm going to do Badlands Daily in the morning, as I did this morning and as I did on Monday. And then I hope to get an episode out before I travel. I will not be doing an episode on Friday, and depending on travel back and how I feel after a long weekend of conferences and panels. I may take Monday and or Tuesday off next week 
But for now, I think that I probably will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!